Brothers and sisters, we're united in the body of Christ. Open up your Bibles so we can be united in the word, word as well. Page 340, Ezra 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. O oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary, and so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O oh our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is, possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detectable, detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. The second reading can be found on page 787. It's from the New Testament book of Acts.
Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their deeds, evil deeds. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Virginia, and thanks, Scott. Uh, I would encourage you to go back to uh, that reading we had from Ezra uh, that Scott helpfully and, and powerfully read to us. Uh, if you're new amongst us or visiting, it's great that you've come and joined us. We're, we're working our way through this, our final, as Andrew said, our final week of looking at the book of Ezra. Uh, you'll find yourself 450 years before Jesus turned up. Uh, you'll find uh, we're looking at it because whilst it's uh, perhaps an obscure book, it's a great reminder, I've been saying again and again, of the greatness and power of our God uh, and the reality and the value of giving him the worship and honour he deserves. Uh, so that's why we're back in Ezra. Uh, Guessing you've found page 340 by now, and so I'm going to pray for us. Our Lord and Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is uh, good, even when at points it is uh, challenging and difficult. Uh, Father, we ask that uh, now as we turn to your word and as we uh, reflect on it and consider it, that your spirit would be uh, working in us powerfully, that we might see and taste its goodness, that we might delight in what it has to say, and be transformed by it. Uh, Father, please do show us uh, when we are in error uh, and point us to true hope that is found in the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Some words are harder to say than others, aren't they? Uh, Sorry is a particularly hard one to pronounce. Well, it's not that hard to pronounce, I just said it, isn't it? It's hard to say. In any meaningful and real way, it's certainly one of the words I find most difficult to say. I mean, it's easy enough, you're wandering down George Street and you bump into someone and you mumble, oh, sorry. You know, that's fine, because that's one of those stories that actually save your face rather than cost you anything. You know, you actually look polite rather than looking rude. Um, 
No, the, the, the sorry that I find hard is the one that costs. Uh, in our Connect group, we've been looking at uh, Matthew, uh, Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I was challenged this week about my inclination to, to leave uh, conflicted relationships alone and uh, to not engage in it, to you know, just let bygones be bygones and, and let's just move on and, and not actually engage and not be willing to say those words. You know, sorry is hard to say. Uh, and often when we say it, we, you know, it dies the death of a thousand qualifications where in the end it kind of feels like rather than a confession, we've just justified why we did it. It's hard to say and it's even harder to be, if I can put it that way. You know, true sorrow is not about feeling bad, but it's about changing behaviour. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 puts it, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow, that is feeling bad but doing nothing, that brings death. Now, saying sorry is actually hard and being genuinely sorry and changing your behaviour is even harder. And so in some ways, as we look at Ezra 9 and 10 today, this might be a hard passage for us. It might be hard for us individually. It might be hard for us corporately as a community here as a, as a church congregation. Hard but good. For godly sorrow leads to salvation and leaves no regret. You know, without an ability for us to, to say and be sorry, uh, then we'll never stand right with our maker, let alone with other people. And so the chapters we look at are, I suppose, the final piece in the puzzle of, of Israel restoring true worship in those times. You know, and the final piece is that need to tremble before the word of the Lord. So as I've been saying, Ezra is primarily concerned about the establishing, re-establishing the true worship of the living God. So 450 years before Jesus came and said, no, no, you can now worship in spirit and truth, it meant they needed to restore the physical temple. Uh, and so we've seen the flow in the book so far. Um, you know, the people of Israel had returned from, from exile and devastation, 70 years of that, and then they came from Babylon back home and they came into some further waves. And so, yep, they've got the people to worship the Lord. That's great. Um, and, and then God stirred up their hearts, believers and unbelievers alike, to get the physical temple rebuilt. That's great. We've got the place to worship the Lord. Uh, and then in, in last week, in 7 and 8, uh, Ezra came and he taught the word in such a way and he taught the implications that they actually now understood how to worship God. The final piece in that restoration is their response. Uh, it's captured in a phrase we see first in 9.4. Um, then everyone who trembled at the words of the Lord, of, uh, the words of the God of Israel gathered around me. The same idea is in 10 verse 3. It's those who fear the commands of God or, or tremble at the commands of God. Same word there. You know, the final stage of restoring the relationship with God, a right relationship, is, is when his word exposes our error, shaking us to the point where we agree with it and we are sorry. Sorry to the point of godly sorrow, sorrow that actually changes us, brings salvation, leaves no regret. That's the trembling that the Israelites experienced. So in 9 verse 1, we open, um, the officials come to Ezra with a confession. So he has been, all these things have been done. I think that includes he's been teaching the word. He's been doing it for a little while now, and they've started understanding the implications. And so they come to him, and they come and admit that there's been an area of disobedience in their lives, in the lives of the people. They've been taking foreign wives in verse 2. 
Now, the issue is not ethnicity. Uh, The book of Ruth, another Old Testament book, is all about how a foreigner can come in and be part of the people of God. It's not an ethnic issue. Um, In in fact, Ruth comes in and becomes part of the the family line of Jesus. It's a complete welcome in. There's not that kind of barrier. But Ruth changed allegiance. She converted to the true and living God. Um, In Deuteronomy 7, where the command is given uh, to ban marrying foreigners, the reason is because it compromises them. Their loyalty to God gets divided. The issue is that these foreigners worship false and foreign gods. Rather than being God's special, holy, set-apart people, a distinctive people in the world, their problem is they were content to be like everyone else. So in 9 verse 2 it talks about how they have mingled the holy race. In other words, they've given up being special just to be like everyone else. They're compromised. Uh, And 9 verse 4 makes it clear that the people who compromise, sadly, are actually the returned exiles. The people who came back to restore true worship, they're the ones who've compromised. And the officials are admitting to Ezra a compromise, basically, they've been covering up. And Ezra is shown, here is a man who trembles at God's word. Uh, In verse 3, he is appalled um, or horrified. And the the grief he goes on to show is the kind of grief you would normally do when someone close to you passes away. So the tearing of the clothes and, and, and the beard... And he fasts and he prays. And it's not the kind of prayer of, oh Lord, please have mercy on those wicked people over there. Isn't it terrible that I'm stuck with having to lead people like that? No, no, it's not that kind of prayer. He understands in verse 6 that if there is guilt in the community, then it affects us all. It is shared. And the impact is seen when we move into chapter 10. We're not going to read through it all, but just look at verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, children, they gathered round him and they too wept bitterly. You know, his trembling at the word became a model for others to copy. And as chapter 10 rolls on, those who tremble at the word of God take it upon themselves to change their ways. So they actually commit to putting off these families that compromise them. And what starts as a small group becomes the commitment of the nation. The chapter rolls on. Within three days, all the men of Judah had gathered to make the same promise. True worship is not complete, is not satisfied until we tremble at his word. It's like what happened in Acts 19, where those, uh, when they hear the word, they confess, and these expensive uh, items of, of spells and magic are thrown to the fire, 50,000 drachmas worth. Now, you know, your conversion rate of drachmas might not be strong. 50,000 days' wages. That's a lot of days' wages. That's more than a lifetime, more than many lifetimes. Yeah. This is where true worship finishes, trembling so that every aspect of our life is informed and obedient, so that that nothing is off-limit. Not even the most valued relationship, that's not off-limit to God. Not even the the money and the possessions we we treasure, that's not off-limit either. It can be so tempting, can't it, that we look at the Bible and and you get intrigued by the intricacies and and perhaps the fascinating language, but we never tremble. I think the sharpest student in my year at theological college, uh, you know, he, he knew the original languages better than I. My Hebrew is at best scratchy, and that's a generous statement. You know, no, he, he knew his languages. Um, he was a guy who could understand, you know, complex theologians' arguments better than I could. But no longer does he profess to follow Jesus. Uh, in fact, last time I caught up with him, uh, he doesn't believe in God anymore. 
all that knowledge, but for him it ends up useless because he won't tremble. And the irony is all the while there are kids out in kids' church uh, who can't even read yet, but they understand when God says something, you need to do it. It's not about smarts, but that attitude of trembling. And we need to watch out for the spirit in us that, that searches the scriptures for loopholes, you know, or a better way of putting it, more informed readings. You know, because the plain reading at first glance, that seems very confronting and quite challenging, so it mustn't say that. As a general rule, with controversial passages, the harder reading is often right. The one that makes you less comfortable is probably the one you should err to rather than exploring the ways of getting around it. Now, if we are serious about worshipping God, then, then as individuals, as communities, we need to tremble. Three signs I want us to draw out that we are trembling at the word. Commitment, confession and comfort. They're all C's. It makes it easier to remember. Commitment, confession, comfort. Uh, first of all, is commitment rather than compromise. You know, they are you know wholeheartedly obedient to God, distinct from the world, even when it costs. You know, in, in Ezra's time, the compromise was that they married outsiders, and so their solution uh, was this wholehearted recommitment. In ten verse three, they will put off these families. Now, I want us to be very careful here. Uh, it touches on a, on a particularly powerful and important topic. You know, the, the action to separate from these families was not something God commanded at that point. It was, it was their solution to a problem they created. But God had commanded them not to have married that way in the first place. Just as today, Christian people, the expectation is that we would only ever choose to marry someone who is in the Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.39, we are free to marry any as long as they belong to the Lord. Now, I'm aware, for some of us, that is too late. You know, some people come to Christ after they've been married. Um, you know, and again, 1 Corinthians 7, useful passage to read, instruction, instructs Christians, remain with those unbelieving partners. Don't break off there. In 1 Peter, the encouragement is actually to remain, win them over to Christ, not by nagging, not by your words, but by a life of radical distinctiveness, of distinctive goodness. You know, God values marriage. He grieves over its breaking. In lots of ways, the people of that time, their, their solution was ugly. But it does grasp the point that they trembled at God's word. And they took seriously the need to be distinctive. Now, Jesus calls you in Matthew 5, if you are a Christian person here today, he calls you the light of a darkened world. He calls you, if you're a Christian person, the salt of a decaying cult, culture. But in the same breath that he says that, he warns, if you lose that saltiness, if you hide that light, if you are not distinct from the rest of this world, it's useless. You know, as individuals and as a church, we need to be exclusively committed to Christ, you know, not compromised by connections to the world. I've spent uh, part of this week, a lot of this week, weighed down by that, trying to think through where is it that in our church culture are there sinful patterns that we need to, as a group, not just individually, but as a group, as, as our congregation, we need to turn away from. I've asked some people uh, this week where we as a community aren't distinctive. Uh, I don't expect we'll have all the same answers. Uh, it was Ezra who actually taught the word and the people came to him and said, this is where we think we're out of step. Uh, and perhaps that needs to happen here. But let me throw some out. Could it be that we lack gospel ambition? 
that our ambitions for career and family and houses are just the same as our unbelieving neighbours and they take precedence for us over storing up treasure in heaven. Could it be that we lack a generosity that reflects God's generosity to us in sending his one and only son? If you're stuck for conversation, no, even if you're not stuck, conversation over morning tea this morning. Ask each other. As a church community, have we compromised our distinctiveness in any way? And then come and tell me your answers. Because if we tremble at God's word, you'll be seen not in compromise but exclusive commitment to him. Second sign flying from that is confession. Yeah, the, the striking feature of these chapters is their contrition. It's, it's heartfelt. Um, Ezra sees the sin and he's appalled and the people join him in weeping. And, and as they confess their sins, I, what strikes me most is they don't qualify their admissions. They just admit guilt. 9.6, oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift my face to you, oh my God, because our sins are higher than our heads. Our guilt has reached to the heavens. You know, so often we kind of go, oh, that was a bit sinful and naughty. I had the second Tim Tam or third. You know, no, no, no. They, there's this, this understanding that, no, no, our sin is so high, it reaches the heavens. It's that far above us. It is that much over us. We're that way. It's an overwhelming size. And he doesn't try and explain why. And he doesn't try and justify why it might have been. He doesn't blame God. Well, Lord, if you'd provided some more wives here in the believing community, I wouldn't have gone off. No, 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 none of that sort of stuff. Uh, instead, and in fact, he sees they got off lightly in verse 13. You know, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds, our great guilt. And yet... Our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given a remnant like this. And when they say sorry, they are really sorry. The final chapter of the book, which um, Scott, who did the reading, will be thankful I didn't make him do, from um, 10.18 onward, is a list of obscure names. And that's how the book ends. All the names of the people who took foreign wives. And you go, why? Well, because they are being named and shamed. The point is there will be no cover-ups. There will be no hushing up to protect the guilty as sometimes the church is guilty of doing. You know, oh, we've dealt with it quietly. We don't need to mention that. No, no, no. This is out there. They are being really sorry as they count the costs and they split up their families. You know, this is a real confession because they tremble at the word. Because you know, only that kind of sorry has power to restore. You know, that's godly sorrow that leads to salvation and doesn't leave regret. As a particular person who um, I've had conflict with and I've never been able to restore the relationship with. Uh, I've given my apology, though um, maybe I did veil it with a few um, self-justifying language kind of techniques. But they won't admit any wrong on their part. Uh, and without that admission of guilt, you know, the offer of forgiveness can hang in the air, but, but we'll, there'll never be reconciliation between us. And the risk is what we do with human relationships, we do with God. And many people have never learnt to honestly and unconditionally say sorry. Instead, we use words like um, when we do an apology, oh, I'm sorry if I hurt you, you know, or yeah, let's just forget the past, or uh, you know, I suppose I, I, I might have been able to do a better job, and I guess it's not all your fault. You know, all these kind of token statements that kind of accuse rather than confess and never actually get reconciliation. Uh, Alfred Poirier gives these tips. Um, they'll pop up on the screen, I think. If you really want to make peace, ask God, 
to help you breathe grace by humbly and thoroughly admitting your wrongs. One way to do it is to use the seven A's. One, address everyone involved, everyone who's affected. Two, avoid if, but, and maybe. Don't try and excuse those wrongs. Three, admit specifically you know, your attitudes and your actions. Four, acknowledge the hurt. You know, express the real sorrow for those you've damaged. Five, accept the consequences. You know, there is restitution that sometimes has to follow. You have to pay. Six, alter your behaviour. Change those attitudes and actions. And seven, ask for forgiveness. Yeah, he spells out really what he's doing there is saying true confession is heartfelt and is costly and it's unqualified. And if you have never done that with other people and let alone if you've never done it with God, don't ignore today's opportunity. You know, if you've been playing a little game imagining that you can hide your sin from his gaze, then free yourself from that kind of burden today because it is a burden. There is nothing weightier than trying to support this sanitised image of yourself before an all-seeing God. You know, it may be that we even need to make a confession together as a group of people, just like they did in Ezra's time. You know, often we do confession in a way it's an individual thing. You know, it's just me and God. Sometimes we do it with each other. You know, I say I'm struggling with anger and, and you say you're struggling with greed. And, and we, you should. But there are times where we actually need to confess corporate sins, sins where we all are doing the same thing. You know, if as you chat over morning tea today, you discover we do have a problem with you know, our generosity, then we need to admit it together before God. Because until we see that our guilt reaches to the heavens, we haven't trembled at the word and we haven't restored real worship. final sign is that of comfort we make commitment we make confession in the comfort of the love and forgiveness of god ezra yes it's a hard word but it's bathed in hope in 9 verse 8 even as ezra speaks of their punishments for rebelling he says but now for a brief moment the lord our god has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary and so our god gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. You know, there are these notes of hope that underlie. Um, 10 verse 2, I like, there's a, a beautiful phrase that in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. There is still hope. Even when your sins reach to the highest heavens, there is still hope because of what God is like. Now, perhaps the thing we find hardest about confessing our sins and admitting what we're like is we worry we'll be met with cold indifference or rejection. You may have noticed the latest rugby league player scandal this week. Uh, If you haven't, I'll be brief. Uh, A player was posted on social media uh, having committed some lewd act with a dog uh, in a drunken state. Uh, I followed the story, not the least I, I used to know the guy. Uh, It was interesting to see that at first he tried to cover it up and I suspect it was a fear that uh, an admission would find no forgiveness, just rejection. Uh, When, I suppose, he couldn't hide it anymore, it's exactly what happened. You know, he stands with his guilt exposed and tomorrow um, his fears will be confirmed, he'll have a multi-year contract torn up. He won't find forgiveness. He'll be rejecting guilt. And, And deep down... Inside of us, right next to perhaps that feeling of guilt is that feeling of fear and shame that if I admitted my sin to someone else, I'd be rejected. And, and even if I admitted it, it's God. But the comfort of the gospel is that our guilt, no matter how terrible it is, not, that, that leaves us not being able to stand before God, no matter how terrible it is because of his favour, 
there is sure hope for all who tremble at his word. You think of the darkest thing in your life. Well, at the cross, every sin ever committed is recognised. At the cross, every sin is condemned. At the cross, every sin is paid for and every sin is wiped away. In Jesus' blood, there is hope that won't fail. And so for us, uh, if we do this kind of confession, it's not a moment of weighing ourselves down. It's a moment of relief. It's a chance to to express again our comfort we have before God. Uh, 1 John puts it beautifully. If we claim to be without sin, what do we do? We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. It goes on that if anyone sins, we do have one who stands in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, every act of honest confession is a declaration of our certain acceptance because of Christ's one act. You know, we are not trapped in deadly silence. We don't have to do cover-ups with God or with each other who stand only by grace too. We can confess with hope. We confess with security and comfort. Even a sense of joy where that's certain. Sorry is a hard word. Hard to say, hard to be. But it's a good word, isn't it? It's the word that will transform us. Perhaps today, this morning, is a time for us to be honest, both as individuals and as a community, about whether we really tremble at the word. I want to give you a moment just to reflect and think and then I'm going to lead us. I'll invite you to join me in a prayer that will be on the screen. It's a kind of adapted Puritan prayer. Uh, the words are strange but um, partly that's to make us think a little more deeply uh, rather than just let it rattle off. But I'll give you a moment to think first of all. Please join with me. Holy Lord, we have sinned times without number and been guilty of pride and unbelief. We're guilty of failure to tremble at your word and neglecting to seek you in our daily life. Our transgressions and shortcomings present us with a list of accusations that reach to heaven. But we bless you that they will not stand against me for all have been laid on Christ. Subdue our corruptions and grant us grace to live above them. Rule over us in liberty and power. Amen.